tells us, Jesus did so many things, if you wrote them all, you couldn't fit them in a book. So they chose certain things to talk about, and to share, and to express. And they chose those things for a purpose. Something in it for us to grab a hold of and to glean. So I hope we'll be able to see what it is that the Lord has for us this morning. In verse 1 it says in chapter 15, immediately in the morning. So remember where we left Jesus. Remember I told you they brought him off of Gethsemane. It's on the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's a short walk down the uh, Gethsemane into the Kidron Valley. Up the other side of the Kidron Valley into uh, on the side of, the, of Jerusalem. The city of David where Caiaphas' house was. That's where they brought him. That's where they assembled the Sanhedrin. Uh, will you come with us to Israel? We'll go there. We'll go to the spot. It's one of the spots I enjoy because it's not a, uh, well, we wonder if maybe this is the place, but that could be the place. Or, but that's, this is the place. You go in underneath this, this structure that they have built there down to the level of, uh, of the time of Christ in Caiaphas' house and you discover that they had empty cisterns underneath. And the empty cisterns Cisterns were what they used to hold water, to store water in the, in the summer. But that when, they, when they were broken and, and, and of no use, in Caiaphas' house, they used it for prisoners. So they would bring prisoners to Caiaphas' house. The Sanhedrin would meet. They would judge what was, to, what was to take place with a prisoner. And they would keep the prisoner in the cistern. And one of the, the neat parts of the trip is getting to, to walk down the stairs. There were no stairs in Jesus' day. They would have just dropped them through a hole. But to walk down the stairs into the cistern to see the place where they, where they would have tied him in the cistern and held him, doing exactly what verse 1 says, while they were deciding what they're going to do with him. Remember they had a quick council meeting, a quick trial, right? We talked about it, and, and Jesus uh, declares, the ego I me, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in power. Remember that statement in chapter 14, verse 62? It's this incredible statement of his deity, of his power, and of him being the judge of all the earth. That one day he would return in judgment. He's, he's laying this out for him. The high priest tears his, his robe, right? Says, blasphemy. Now, blasphemy was, was punishable by death, but you see that the nation of Israel is not in control. They're not in charge. Somebody else is, right? Rome's in charge. And so they were able to govern themselves to a point, but beyond that required the, the stamp or the approval of Rome. So they got blasphemy, and they can charge them with blasphemy, but you know, Rome doesn't really care about that. Rome doesn't care if, if they were worshiping God the right way, if they had broken some kind of religious law according to the Jews. Rome didn't care. So now you have the Sanhedrin from the time Jesus, remember he's beaten, he's dropped in the hole. From the time of all that going on until the morning when they take him to Pilate, they've got to come up with the charges. What charges can we bring to Caesar that are going to stick because Caesar don't care about blasphemy. Caesar doesn't care that Jesus thinks he's God. Caesar could care less. Caesar, it didn't matter to Caesar. So it says immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. So they had to make a decision. Now, in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, we can read a little bit more about what was going on. What was the decision that they had to make? It says in, in John 18, 
verse 31 and 32. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your own law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by which way he would die. If the Jews were going to put someone to death, how did they execute capital punishment? How did the Jews put someone to death? Stoning, right? Stoning. In fact, the place that we're going to see the cross next week, the place where we're going to see the cross, a place called Golgotha. Golgotha is called the place of the skull. It was in the rock quarry, right? That's where they went. If you're going to stone somebody, where do you take them? Take them to the rock quarry, right? Now, in Jerusalem, it's not hard to find rocks. But if they were doing something, capital punishment, they'd go out there and they would... They would stone people right in front of this this giant cliff, or not really a giant cliff, but this this structure where they pulled rock out of of the the mountain that began over time to look like a skull. So they called it Golgotha. So there they would have stoned him. But what did Jesus say when Jesus said, "You're you're going I'm going to be betrayed." Into the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be beaten. What did Jesus say? How was he going to be killed? He said, I will be crucified. And on the third day, I'll rise again. Now the Jews, they don't crucify, right? But they had to get Rome's approval. So what Jesus said was true. When he said they're going to crucify him. They're not going to stone him. They're going to crucify him. And so they, they come up with a plan. We got to go to Pilate to make sure it's okay. And we've got to decide what charges we're going to look, or what charges we're going to bring. So there's three charges they bring before Pilate. We can see them as we work our way through the other Gospels. Here's the three charges. Subverting our, our nation, like he's trying to overthrow the power of Rome. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar. Okay. And he calls himself a king. Calls himself a king. Remember, he was... The Christ. The Christ is the anointed one. The coming king. So, so of all the charges that they bring, there's only one that really leaps out to, to Pilate. There's only one. All, all the Gospels, all the synoptics and John, all lay out for us the same question that, that Pilate's going to focus in on. And we see that in verse 2. It says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. So the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. So Pilate marveled. Pilate's kind of blown away by what's going on and what's happening in this place. So, when we look at the, the Gospel of John, if we look at John 18 again, we can get a little more out of Pilate's conversation uh, with Jesus. How did that go down to the point where he asks him whether or not he's a king? In verse 33 of John 18, it says, And Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you? This concerning me. Pilate answered him, I, a Jew, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight 
so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. I always like that little three-letter word. Now, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. For this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said, Ged est veritas. Famous line, What is truth? He never hung around for the answer. He just walked away. So we see the conversation that Jesus has. Are you a king? All of the Gospels, including the Gospel of John, have this, this little statement. Well, it is as you say. Basically what's happening is as he's asking these questions, he's asking, are you the king of the Jews? And basically, how come you're not saying anything? How come you're not responding to the charges? You remember, the chief priests are there saying, he tells people not to pay taxes, and he's subverting the nation, he wants to overthrow Rome, and he calls himself a king. Now, Pilate only really cares about the king one. That could be an issue. That could be an issue, this king deal. But, but the chief priests, they're shouting, and they're frantic. They're, they're probably foaming at the mouth, frothing, because they're afraid that maybe Pilate's not going to Crucify him. Maybe, maybe Pilate won't kill him. And, and we'll be, we'll be in, a, in a bit of a pickle. So they're, they're frothing. But Jesus' answer basically is this. Are you the king? Jesus says, that's what you say. It's kind of an ambiguous answer in the Greek. All four Gospels is an ambiguous answer. In fact, when he, in the Gospel of John, talks about truth, this is why I came, this is what I've come for. What is it that Jesus is referring to? He told us already, right? In the Gospel of John, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the... And no man comes to the Father except how? Through him. So what is the work that he was born to do? To pave a way so that mankind could have access to the Father. To provide the sacrifice that would make the way open... For men to have access to his Father. No man can come into the Father except through me. Jesus was at that point, that access point. That's what he had come to do. But the questions he's laying out for him. Look, are you the king? Why aren't you talking back? He's, he's a little bit uh, ambiguous in it. But then the scripture tells in Mark that Pilate marveled. Pilate marveled. That word in the Greek is a word that, that, that speaks that, that Pilate was amazed, that he was astonished, and he had admiration for. So, so Pilate is looking at Jesus and thinking, man, there's something about this guy. So I just want you to picture on one side, frothing at the mouth, crazy, yelling, screaming. And on the other side, you have Jesus, the Christ, who is calm. And at peace. Even though he's already been beaten. He's already begun the suffering of the passion. That's already started. It's going to get much worse. But it's already begun. Yet he's calm. As we look at this. I just want you as we consider this. As we come through the scene. Just ask yourself. Which one you resemble more. In your life. 
the chaos on the side of the chief priests who are bringing charges against Messiah or the peace of Messiah. Because really, as we look at this, there's just so much symbolism in in the different roles that people play. And it's important that we don't remove ourselves from the equation. See, we're there too. We're there too. And as we move forward, doesn't it, isn't it that Jesus said, come and follow me, right? Isn't that what he tells us? Come, follow me, come. So if we're going to follow Jesus, where are we following him to? Where are we going? We're going to the cross. We're going not just to the cross of the place where we die, but what else? What's after the cross? Resurrection, right? And what else is it that, he, that, he, that he's calling us to? New life? New life springing forth? And, and so all of these things that we have in Christ, but we have to recognize and realize that our life is that journey of following Him. And if we're following Him, are we following His example? Or when things get sideways, do we find ourselves following poor examples out of the Scripture? That we're, we're losing our focus, we've lost our calm, we've lost our peace. But as we think about that, and we go on in the scripture, it says in verse 6, Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to release one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. Now, this is not a, a, a Jewish um, custom. This was a Roman custom. Rome, all over, wherever they were, wherever they ruled, on certain holy days for that area, area they would release prisoners, try to keep up the morale of the people, stay out of of riots and those kind of things. So Rome had this deal. Every once in a while, they, they would turn somebody loose. And so when I look at this, I think, okay, well, we've got the questions of Pilate, the response of Christ, the, the Pilate uh, considering <clears throat> what's going on, what's happening around him, crazy, peaceful, I know, I got it out. Oh, this is the time of the year I let somebody go. This is the time of year that I let somebody go. So, so he's thinking about that. It says, there was one who was chained, whose name was Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. And they had committed murder in the rebellion. So Barabbas was a political prisoner. Right? Barabbas was probably a zealot. Barabbas probably tried to lead a rebellion against Rome. So Barabbas is not unpopular. Sometimes I think when we do, when we watch movies about uh, the passion, when we watch movies about the life of Christ, they come to Barabbas and, and they, they, they paint him as some crazy criminal that, that, that everybody didn't like. But the reality is, he's a murderer. Sure, he killed people. Who'd he kill? Romans. The people who were siding with Rome. He's come... There's such a great parallel. He's come to, to bring a rebellion, Barabbas. He's come to overthrow Rome. He's come to accomplish it. So he's got some popularity among at least a certain group of people there in Jerusalem. Tradition tells us Barabbas was his last name. His first name was Jesus. Jesus was a very popular name. Jesus Joshua, Yehoshua. Uh, so, so very popular. A lot of people named their children uh, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Yehoshua, which is God is salvation. So, tradition says his name is Jesus Barabbas, son of the Father. That's what Barabbas means. 
Son of the Father. That's why when, when Pilate's going to talk about Barabbas and their choice, he's going to say, do you want Barabbas? Or do you want Jesus of Nazareth? He, he, he describes where Jesus is from. He didn't want to confuse the people over the offering. So I just want you to think. Really, up on that stage, standing with Pilate, you have two guys who have come to bring revolution. One who's going to do it the way men do it. Bloody, killing, and one who's come to do it in a totally different way. Who is going to always be despised because of the way that he comes. When we look at it, we see these two. <clears throat> which one? Which, which rebellion do you want? Which rebellion do you want? So when we come to this, we come to the scripture that says that uh, then the multitude cried aloud and began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered and said, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. I always wondered about that. How did that happen? How did the people want Barabbas? Okay, just stop for a minute. Back up. Okay, so it was a custom for them to release a prisoner on Passover. Does anybody think Jesus is going to be arrested overnight? Does anybody think he's going to be beaten, he's going to be charged, and he's going to be brought before Pilate in the morning? No. Does anybody know yet? No. It's the first thing in the morning. People ate Passover to midnight. They're crashed. They're getting up late. Jesus is going to be on the cross before most people know what's going on. But it was a custom to release somebody. So who was there? Who was there before Pilate on the, his, his time when he would release a prisoner? Who's there? Who's naturally there? Barabbas' buddies. The people that ran with Barabbas, the people who cared about Barabbas. It wasn't a difficult thing for the chief priests to get the, the crowd to shout, release Barabbas. That's why they came. That's what they came for. Remember, Jesus arrested at midnight, tried in the dark, put in the thing, brought out, six in the morning, first watch of the day. Yeah, all this stuff that's going on, down to Herod, back up to him. The word has not really got out. But the people who were there for Barabbas, they want to see their buddy, right? They want to see their buddy cut loose. So when he says, you want me to release you the king of the Jews, they all start shouting, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Remember I told you when we, when we began, two things jumped out at me. Two things jumped out at me. It's kind of incredible when you, when you start to consider what's going on here. So it says that they called for him to release Barabbas, release Barabbas to him. Look what happens in verse 12. It says, Pilate answered and said to them again, Then what do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. Release Barabbas. Look, I just want you to see it. Barabbas, is there any question about whether he's guilty? So Barabbas is a guilty guy. Absolutely guilty. He did everything they said he did. Jesus, is there any question about his innocence? We look through all the different times. Pilate three times going to say he's innocent. 
He's innocent. He's innocent. He's innocent. He, I don't know how many times you got to say it before we got it. Okay, he's innocent. So what has just happened? What has just happened there at the trading of Barabbas for Christ is the guilty went free and the innocent is paying the price. It is the substitute sacrifice. And what is happening on a small scale as you look at at Barabbas going free and Jesus Christ bearing the punishment that really belonged to him is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you and I and everyone else who will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's what Jesus Christ has, has wrought for us all. The what? That the guilty can go free. And that the innocent, the innocent would pay the price. Now, in case you think, well, I don't know if really they're grasping all of that, if they, if they get all that, I just want you to realize that, that as we look at what happened, after the, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, do you realize the radical transformation that takes place in the world? So we don't realize it because we're here. We're, we wake up and we look around and this is just how it's always been. But back then, that's not how it always was. Rome was radically transformed. Radically transformed. Because of Christians. It's crazy to look at the history and what was wrought and what, what God did through Christians who were simply doing what we just spoke about a minute ago. Remember Jesus said, come follow me, and we follow him to the cross, and we follow his example. We want to have the mind of Christ, right? We'll talk about that. We want to have all those. We want to follow where he leads us. We want to become a new life. We want to see that new life, that resurrection life. But along the way, part of where he walked was this concept of substitution. So we actually have letters from Caesar's who were complaining about the Christians because they were taking care of the poor. And because they were taking care of the poor, the, the Christians were, were growing. Christianity was growing and they were having this incredible influence. But it wasn't that they were out for influence or they were out for political power or they were out for any of those things. All they were doing was what Jesus said to do. And what Jesus said to do was help take care of the poor. So they didn't just take care of their own poor. They were taking care of the, the pagan poor. They were taking care of the Greek poor and the Roman poor. All the poor that they could do. But you know what they had to do to accomplish that? They had to give up their riches. Sounds like substitution, doesn't it? Substituting yourself for somebody else? Oftentimes we point to the things that Jesus taught us. He said that you should love your neighbor. We know that that came out of Leviticus, right? That's old law, not new law. <laughs> that you would love your neighbor, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. So we see the Christians doing this there, reaching out to the poor. In about 165 AD, this horrible plague came through the, the area and everyone fled. When a plague would come to the city, what people would do is they'd run to the hills and wait for everybody to die off who's going to die off. And hopefully they don't get it. And then they come back 
and, and clean up the mess and push out the bodies and, and reap the rewards if somebody left something behind that nobody else was claiming. <clears throat> That's how they did it in the ancient world. That's how they did it. The, the, it was, it's hilarious because women really had no rights. It was, it was, it was uh, funny. Well, not really funny, but I think it's funny. Maybe ironic is the word. It's ironic. Funny would be bad. Um, but they would, they, a man would marry a woman, and she is bound to be true to him, but it was okay if he ran around with whoever. That was the world. That's not just some little corner. That was the way it was. Till Christianity came and said, that's not okay. You can't do that. There was a greater percentage of male to females in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire. Do you know why? Because everybody wanted a boy. They really didn't care if they had a girl. So when they had a girl, a number of fathers would do exactly what happens in, in China today. And they take that little girl and they just leave her out to the wild animals or throw her away or get rid of her. Seems like somebody just did that around here, no? I don't think we're that far removed. What was it that changed that? The Christians coming in saying, that's not okay. That's life. You can't just throw life away. All life is precious. It was the Christians that did that. When, that. when that plague came in and all the people ran to the hills, one group stayed in the city. Christians. To do what? Take care of their neighbor. What happened to them? Well, some of them got sick and died. And some of their neighbors lived as a result. What's that sound like? Substitution? Jesus said, come, follow me. That picture of substitution. Him substituting himself. Don't you think the believers said, why would they go? Why would they go there with all this sickness? They, there's no way that, to guarantee they're not going to get sick. Why would they go? Because they say, this is what Jesus did for me. How can I not do this for someone else? Tell me, how do we get to where we are today that that seems like such a foreign idea? That something that costs me, I don't know if that's the best thing to do. How do we get to that place? Because once upon a time, that was a heart of Christianity. And it took Rome and put it upside down. It was crazy. And the only way the devil could stop it, the only way the devil could stop what was going on, people getting saved, church is growing, great things are happening. They're not trying to come to political power. They're not trying to do anything. But what happened? The devil, he just decided, well, let's, let's give them power. Let's give the church power. Nothing good ever happens when a church has power. Because what happens is the same thing that happens when you get power. When I get power. Eventually, we screw it up. No? Well, the United States of America, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. How do we get to where we are today? We're not who we were. 
Power corrupts. Power corrupts. And it was, so, so are we going to get a Barabbas? Let's find us a Barabbas. He'll go in there and shoot a bunch of guys to kill everybody and then take control. And of course it'll be better when Barabbas is there, right? No, people just be dead and mad. Jesus Christ is supposed to be on the throne. And when he's on the throne, what happens? How do people respond? They respond in an attitude of substitution. What do I mean? I mean, I mean they, they help the poor by, by giving of their riches. They help the sick by doing what? By giving of their health to be there alongside them. To comfort. Why? Because this place is not my home anyway. Why am I holding on so tight to it? Christians changed the world because of that day when Jesus is standing there and the people shouted for Barabbas and they substituted. And the people told the story and they said, look, this is what Jesus did for us. He let the guilty go and the innocent paid. And Jesus said, come follow me. Come follow me. Come go where I'm going. Rodney Stark wrote a book about the Roman Empire and the growth of Christianity in it. And I just want to read this this quote out of his book. This is what he wrote. Heedless of danger, Christians took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Jesus. And many departed their life serenely happy. For they were infected by their neighbors, and they cheerfully accepted their pains. Many Christians, in nursing and caring for their neighbors, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. So if I take care of my neighbor, my neighbor might survive. My neighbor might live, but I might die. Oh, that's what Jesus did for me. The poor, I became poor. What did Jesus do? Man, we can't even begin to fathom the, the, the wealth that Jesus Christ set aside to come. Can we? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Who happens to also be the, the Son of Almighty God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Who has it all. To whom it all belongs. The idea of substitution. What did Jesus get? They let Barabbas go. What's the scripture say? Simple words. And he scourged him. And took him away to crucify him. Simple words. We all get the idea. To me the best picture on the face of earth of scourging is still the passion of the Christ. And it probably falls a bit short of of what reality looked like. So Jesus Christ bears the stripes. What is it that Isaiah 56 said? I gave my back to those who struck me. Nobody was going to take Jesus. He gives it. I gave my face to spitting and to mocking and to those who plucked out my beard. He gave those things to him. So they have him scourged and they lead him to a way to be crucified. But then the, the next thing that occurs that I see in the Gospel of Mark that he really emphasized, not just that, 
that substitution that we see, but then the mocking. And the mocking just kind of was jumping off the page at me. In verse 16, it says, Then the soldiers led him away to the hall called the Praetorium. So, one of the things, one of my favorite, probably pretty close to my absolute favorite place to go in Jerusalem, is what they call the Praetorium. Now, it's not really in the Praetorium anymore. Um, so, let me try to explain it like this. Jerusalem has been built and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed so many times that they just start over and start over and start over and they get all these levels. You with me? So you go down into the city, get down to the, to the area where you might be at the time of Christ. You with me? So, but what happens when 70 AD, when Rome destroys Israel, you know what they do? They drag a plow through it. They obliterate it. Now when the next people come in, they're looking around, they're going to rebuild. Well, there's all these stones already ready, so why go make more, right? So you just rebuild with the stones you have. And so, sometimes those stones, an example of that, the Praetorium, end up in a different place than the Antonio Fortress, which is right there where, where Pilate is. In the Antonio Fortress, <clears throat> in that fortress was a Praetorium where they kept the guards, where the guards brought Jesus to play with him until the crucifixion. That's what's happening now. Everybody mocked him. Don't just think it was the Romans. The, the, the chief priests, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, remember they went crazy beating and mocking him. Then they, they give him to Herod. And Herod's guys beat him and mock him. And then they give him back to Pilate. And Pilate's guys are going to beat him and mock him. And they're going to put him on a cross on the road uh, uh, right there outside of Jerusalem. And everybody who walks by is going to mock him. And beside him on two sides are two thieves. What are they going to do? You got it right. They're going to mock him too. They're going to mock him. Everybody. Everybody is going to, is going to take part in, that, in the mocking of Christ. So the praetorium, they took those stones. And so today they're not there. You go down in a basement of a building a little ways away from where the Antonio Fortress is, down into their basement, and whenever they rebuilt it, they took the stones out of the Praetorium and they put them there. And the reason they know that they're the stones from the Praetorium is because engraved in the stone is the king's game. So you can look at it. You can run your finger through it. It's a circle. Several different pie shapes. And they would roll a, a dice, cast a lot, and whatever the number was, they would move that space and do whatever was on that space. Crown of thorns. Bow before the prisoner. Put a bag over his head and hit him. Whatever things the soldiers could think of. They called it the king's game because they would dress the prisoner up like a king. And they would play this game with him. And so you can go down to the praetorium, to those stones. Those stones are so smooth from time. They're, they're like, it's like looking at marble almost. And you can see the, 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 the gutters cut in the road or where, where it was part of the, the courtyard out inside of the Antonio Fortress and the gutters that would catch the rain. And you wonder, how close was that gutter to the place where they beat Christ? Did his blood run in that gutter? Was it on this stone? Here's the game. Is this the place where he was set, where they played this game of mocking and beating with him? 
And because it's down in a basement, it's quiet. And whenever we go down there, we take a guitar, and we do some quiet worship, and we take communion. You have not ever had communion if you haven't had it like that. In that place, surrounded by that atmosphere, reading through the scriptures about what it is that they did to Christ. Look what it says. It says, they clothed him with purple, they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail the king of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed, they spit on him, they bowed their knee, and they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified. Now we don't know how long that took. So the scourging was not instant. In fact, when I was watching The Passion, I kept hoping that it was over. I don't know if you guys, how many of you guys seen it, but it, it's rugged to watch. So <clears throat> it seemed like a long time. So you got the scourging that takes place. But that's not the end of it. Then they're getting all their stuff together. They got to get the other prisoners ready. Got to get all that stuff happening. So they bring Jesus into the praetorium and start playing with him. Do you see where Mark says they brought all the soldiers? The word used there for the garrison is a cohort. Six hundred soldiers. Don't take six hundred soldiers, make them bored, put somebody in front of them that they can't get in trouble for beating, and just stand by and watch what happens. Ain't nothing changed. Same thing happens today. Same thing. So, what is it that this... This attitude of mocking teaches us. I just want us to grab something from the the mocking of Jesus. For one thing, it shows us our heart. Shows us our heart. Because why are they mocking him? Because Because of their extreme hostility to his claims. It would have been fine if he just said he was one of the ways. It would have been fine if he told everybody to do whatever they wanted to do. But that's not who Jesus was. Not what he said. He said one way. He said, I am the, the, the Son of God. He said that He was God in the flesh and that He was going to die for His people. He made claims that people couldn't stand. That different today? In the circles that would mock the faith, the Christianity, is, that, is their mocking different than the mocking of the soldiers? Why do they mock? Because of their extreme hostility toward the claims. Jesus Christ is the only character of history where someone can become a scholar of Jesus and spend their entire life disputing everything he did or said. There are also scholars of Queen Elizabeth. There are scholars of all sorts of ancient people in history. You know what they spend their time doing? Showing people all the great things or the incredible, why that person in history is so important. But not so with all the scholars of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he was who he said he was. They mock. Extreme hostility toward his claims. Only people today can come together, spend a lifetime of study and say, you know what, I'm going to reject this book that was birthed 2,000 years ago, just under 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to decide what Jesus said. Are you kidding me? Who does that? You guys ever heard of Anne Rice? Some of you who haven't, it's okay. You don't have to look her up. 
She wrote some books. One of them made into a movie. Interview with a Vampire. She wrote a lot of vampire books. She decided she was going to write a book about Jesus. So she began to do a bunch of research on him. And she was so blown away by all the mocking that happens in the scholarly circles around Christ that she comes to faith. She comes to believe in Christ as a result of her journey trying to understand the, the historicity, the historical Jesus because of the mocking. The mocking shows us our hearts are hostile toward Him. The other thing the mocking shows us, we hate weakness. Don't we? We go watch a movie and they got the hero. And the hero's tied up and he's, and he's being beaten or something's happening. We're all, what are we all waiting for? If, if the movie's going to be any good, what we're waiting for is somebody to mess up. And the hero's going to get loose. And he's going to go get all those people who were getting him. Why? We hate weakness. We hate weakness. What happened to Jesus? They stood there before the cross and they're going to say if you are the son of God come down if you're so powerful get off if you're really the hero come down from the cross but it shows us that we hate weakness surely surely God wouldn't do this to me Surely God wouldn't allow this in my life. Surely God wouldn't let me go through this. Remember I told you, when we look, we can look and we can find ourselves either as a chief priest or the peace of Christ. We can find ourselves supporting a Barabbas or a Jesus Christ. Or we can find ourselves mocking Him still today. Still today. Surely God would never do this to me. While you call this... The love of God, and this is the love of God. I just wish God would stop loving me so much. It shows us our heart. We're hostile toward His claims. And we hate weakness. We hate it. Are we mocking God? But what this story shows us is that this is how God works. He does accomplish things through weakness. He does work in the midst of all of this hardship. And when we look at it, when we're struggling with it, our hearts are getting hard, and we're starting to find ourselves mocking God, we got to recognize, we got to realize what's happening to us. we got to realize that what we're doing is thinking, I know more than God. I know more than God. This is not the way you should do it. I know more than God, this shouldn't happen this way. And we find ourselves, just like the soldiers in the praetorium, or just like Herod's guys in his palace, or just like the guys with the chief priests, we find ourselves in a circle mocking the Savior. Because we think we know better. We think we got it all figured out. We have it all solved. 
if God was really working in my life, then this and this and that, that wouldn't be happening. Really? Not only does mockery show us our heart and our rebellion against Him, mockery shows us His. See, Jesus expresses His greatness by being humiliated and shamed. So we don't always get the the concept of crucifixion, so we don't have anything like that today. Crucifixion didn't just kill your body. It destroyed your character. It destroyed your name. When they took you to be crucified, they stripped you naked. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. It was hurtful. It was painful. It was mocking. It was humiliating and filled with shame. And they put him on that cross. He showed his greatness in that, in the humiliation. He showed his greatness in the shame. He chose it. It was for this purpose that he came. The loss of all dignity. Jesus Christ took the shame. His reputation destroyed. His name destroyed. So that we could have a name with God forever. And when... Early Christians considered what the mockery shows us, this, this, this uh, rebellion in my heart against the claims of God. For we know all things work together for good. Oh, stop saying that. Everybody says that. Well, we don't like that claim. I know the things that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Oh, don't tell me that matter you don't like the claims of God the promises of God to cling to let God be true every man a liar but this is what the early Christians learned listen to what Paul says 2 Corinthians 12 7 and lest I would be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations a thorn in the flesh was given to me as a gift what? a thorn in the flesh you get the picture, right? Like, uh, get stabbed in the back. Thorn in the flesh. The thorn in the flesh was given. It's a gift. It was given unto me. It was a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure. Lest I get too big in my britches. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect where? In weakness. Oh, we hate weakness. But God says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Look what Paul says next. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Isn't that crazy? He says, therefore... Most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproach, in needs, in persecution, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. They follow. So we're going to find ourselves on one of those sides. We're either mocking Christ, 
We're mocking his weakness. We're mocking his plan. We're mocking his purpose. Or we're willing to follow him and be weak and be shamed and be disregarded and be ridiculed and be thought an idiot. You really think that's something new? But look, I got a better argument than them. I can take them. I can take them. I can prove. No, you can't. You can't. If a man don't want to hear you, he's not going to hear nothing you say. Doesn't absolve us of the opportunity or the responsibility to bear witness to Christ and to share that which we can. But we should not be shocked. When we are thought a fool. Those stupid Christians. Those guys who believe all those crazy stories. Hey. I believe a donkey talked. That's what the Bible said. Well that's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. Well you should probably stop listening to me then. Because I believe all the stuff that's in this book. The donkey's not the hardest thing in there to believe. There's a lot of things in there. The word of God is absolutely true. I don't want to be a mocker. I don't want to be on that side. Listen to to what Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2 to you and I. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is the attitude we're supposed to have, right? What mind? Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But what did he do? He made himself... No reputation. He was humbled. He was shamed. So that we didn't have to stand with shame before God the Father. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself with no reputation. Took on the form of a bondservant, a slave. And coming in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. When I look at that, the substitution and the mockery and the things, I, I, I just want my heart to be revealed my one to put all my hope in a Barnabas or Barabbas? Barnabas. I thought I almost went to a purple dinosaur there for a minute. <laughs> Do I want to put all my hope in Barabbas or I want to put my hope in Christ? Do I want to put my hope in the finished work he has accomplished? Do I want to recognize that in weakness he's made strong, that his way is the right way? Then we ought to be okay with how the world treats us and the things that the world says and recognizing that that's the point. That's the way they're going to be. And our role is simply to be able to express the truth of who Christ is in us to them. Jesus saved me by being shamed. Jesus saved me by being misunderstood. So sometimes now I'm shamed. Sometimes now people misunderstand me. And in some small way, I share in his disgrace, and it becomes a part of my witness. Becomes a part of my witness because he called us to love people. When we share the love of Christ with others, what fell on him falls on us.
So just think. Just look. Just consider that you're not the ones mocking the Savior of your own soul. Follow Jesus. Look at the things we've studied up to this point. Make Him your example. Walk with Him. I promise you, the end is going to be worth it all. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we just, as we come before you, Lord, we pray that even as we are entering into a time fasting and seeking your face of of coming before you and just really wanting to go after you and to, to recognize and to see, to experience all that you have for us, God, I just pray that we would, that we would see, that we would understand the, the substitution of Christ, the, the guilty goes free, the innocent pays. And when we follow Christ in like regard, then we can see the, the power of Christ moving in and through our life, just like the early Christians saw it in the world they were in. But their world was just as dark and twisted as ours is today. But by actually living out what, what they saw in the life of Christ, they changed their world. It wasn't because they got a new king. They had crazy king. They had Nero. It wasn't because the political scene was all good. It was simply because they didn't love their life. They didn't love their life. Or they were... They overcame the, the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, what Jesus Christ had done for them. And they didn't love their life so much that they clung to it. They didn't love their life to the death. They were willing to sacrifice, to substitute. God, I pray that we would not be mockers who, who look at our life and say, God, why? Where is, what's going on? God doesn't know what he's doing. It's, my life's a mess. But rather we would just follow the example of Christ who there in Getsmone wrestling with the next hour's events was able to bow the knee and say not my will, yours. I'm here to do the will of the Father. I'm here to do the will of the Father. May we be able to bow the knee, not mock, bow the knee and say I'm here to do the will of the Father. If this is the road you want me to walk, if this is the things that I need to experience, so be it. That we would recognize when we take the love of Christ from here to a Christ-rejecting world, they don't understand and they can't see. We need God to supernaturally move through the Holy Spirit in us and call them, draw them to repentance to open their eyes to the truth that they would be able to see that God would be glorified and men and women would be added to the family of God. That all those who are willing to call upon His name would be saved. So God, we pray that You would work in us and through us. And that we don't just go so quickly through the events in the life of Christ that they don't impact us where we are. God, I pray that we would come to recognize and realize the value in the name of Jesus and what he has done, what he has shown, and what he has given for us. 
So God be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have uh